Today I'll be reading uh, Revelations chapter 1, verse 18. Revelations chapter 1, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And, and have the keys of hell and of death. Thank you, Nick. Nick did a great job. We appreciate Nick. Nick just became a Christian about two weeks ago, last week, last Sunday. So anyway, to have him up reading scripture, he did such a great job, and we're proud of him. I was thinking a moment ago that this morning, Jordan Green came and sat down beside me and had his braces on and his bow tie on. Now Nick's up here, and I thought, you know, one of these guys is going to have my job one day. Won't be long. So that'll be a great thing, great day. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be looking at several verses in chapter 1 as we think about the theme, the splendor of Jesus. I do not know of anyone that has affected as much change in the world in which we live as the one that we call Jesus. When you look at Jesus and you begin to search and sift through the scriptures, you have to be amazed. As we sang a moment ago, I stand amazed. And so to look at the many facets of Jesus and to think about his great influence and all the things that he did and then couple with that all of the things that he said, it's no wonder that it was said about Jesus on one occasion, no man ever spoke like this man. He was incomparable. Tonight I want us to think for a minute or two about the splendor of Jesus. And I want us to look at verses 4 through 7 and then verses 17 and 18. I want to begin by calling attention to His redeeming grace. I want to read for you what John records, the latter part of the first century, beginning in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I would grant that there is a lot of information packed into these two verses. What I want to do is maybe just try to extract a couple of things and talk about them, and we'll save the other for another occasion. But two things stand out to me in reading Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. First, I think about the fact that He loves us. Jesus loves us. Listen again to what is said. John, in writing, said to him who loves us, us or loved us. As just a little fella, I, like many of you, learned the song, Jesus Loves Me. And I would imagine that that's probably one of the first songs that most toddlers learn. We learn it at a very early age. It was true then, it's true now. Jesus loves me. He loves you. He loves all of us. And the Bible talks about 
the love of God, the love of Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. When you begin to look at the many facets of His character, one thing stands out, Jesus and God, that is God the Father, beings of love. When I look at this verse, there are two things that come to mind as I think about the fact that Jesus loves us. Number one, I can't help but think about the greatness of His love. The Bible tells us in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus Himself said, Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he said, But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us. There are a lot of things you could say about Jesus. There are a lot of things you could say about God the Father. But one thing that ultimately epitomizes both of them is their great and profound love. They, they love us. And then there's a second thing. Not only do we read of the greatness of His love, but the genuineness of His love. How many times do people in our world use the expression, I love you? And how often do people talk about their love, they express, they verbalize their love for one another, and sometimes it may seem disingenuous. But when it comes to the love of God, His love is genuine, isn't it? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us over and over again that God genuinely loves each and every person. Hard to imagine that there is a God in heaven that loves us. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then, of course, in Romans chapter 5, in verse 8, Paul said, But God commendeth His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's true, Jesus talked about His love for us. It's true that the Bible speaks of the genuineness of the love of God. But the Lord did more than talk about His love. He demonstrated that love, didn't He? He went to the cross and died for our sins. And so... When you step back and think about what John is saying, he begins this great book by talking about emphasizing his love for us. And then there's a second thing. Not only does he love us, but he liberates us. Look again at verse 5. The Bible says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Past tense. In other words, the redemptive plan of God has been completed, hasn't it? If you go back to the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament prophets were pointing to the coming of the Son of God, weren't they? All of those prophets of old pointing to the Messianic age, the coming of God's anointed. When Jesus came to earth, that was the fulfillment of God's plan. In other words, it was His plan for Jesus to come to tabernacle in human flesh. John said in John chapter 1 that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here is Jesus making His way into the world, born of a virgin, as Isaiah would talk about in Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew documents the fact that Jesus was indeed born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea, as it was written in the prophets. And He of course, citing Micah chapter 5. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And so here is Jesus, this eternal being, coming to earth and tabernacling in human flesh. 
Well, why was he here? What was his purpose? Jesus said, my work ultimately is to do the will of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So you think about, first and foremost, the price of His redeeming blood. Jesus loves each and every person to the extent that He willingly left heaven, left the glories of heaven. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 9, Though He were rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, that we through His poverty might be made rich. Can you imagine Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, leaving heaven and coming to live on planet earth? Why did He do that? To redeem us? To remedy the sin problem? When Jesus prayed to God the Father in the shadow of the cross, we talk about the will of God. Jesus said, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. He said, I've glorified you on the earth. Jesus came to finish God's redemptive plan. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that we've not been redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, said, speaking of Jesus, that he spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. I would, I would grant there was a cost involved in Jesus coming to earth. It cost God the Father his son. It cost Jesus his life, didn't it? So we talk about the price of his redeeming love. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. And then there is the power of His redeeming love. To step back and to realize that Jesus has the power to liberate us from sin, doesn't He? Jesus has, well, Jesus is the answer to sin. When Paul recounted his conversion to Christ, he talked about how he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent or arrogant man. He said, but I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And then he went on, to, went on to say, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he said, of whom I'm chief. So Paul here is saying, look, you want to know what a sinner looks like? Then just take a look at my life. I am the definition of a sinner. And yet Paul understood that through the redemptive plan of God, through the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, he could enjoy forgiveness, couldn't he? Do you remember the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12? When he said, speaking of the covenant under which you and I now live, and he quoted Jeremiah. And he said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. So whatever is in our past, once forgiven, is in our past. Never again to be brought up. So first there is His redeeming grace. And then secondly, His regal government. John here talks about the spiritual government of our Lord. Look at verse 6. 
And he has made us, some translations say, kings and priests. The idea is he has made us a kingdom and really a priesthood to his God and Father. There's some things that we need to maybe consider when it comes to the spiritual government of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I would remind all of us that it is a distinctive kingdom. It's not like earthly kingdoms that come and go, physical monarchies, but rather this is a spiritual kingdom. One of the most difficult things for people to, I guess, grasp is the fact that the kingdom of God, the church, is a spiritual entity. Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus in the long ago said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, then he said, my servants would fight. Well, his kingdom, spiritual in nature. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. He said, neither will they say, lo here or lo there. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. Here's the fascinating part about the kingdom. The Bible says that we as children of God are in the kingdom, and the kingdom is in us. You remember in Colossians chapter 1, when Paul said, giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light? He went on to say, he has delivered us out of the power of darkness and then translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So this is a spiritual kingdom, distinctive in every respect. Not only is it a spiritual kingdom, but it is a singular kingdom. There are just as many kingdoms as there are kings. How many kings are there? Well, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and about verse 15 that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is one kingdom and one king. Go back to the book of Daniel. Go back to some of the other Old Testament prophecies. Daniel foretold of the day and time when the kingdom would be established. Ultimately, he said it would be established in the days of the Roman kings. It was established in the city of Jerusalem. The time was about A.D. 32 or 33 on Pentecost Day, just as the prophets had said of old. While Jesus was on earth, engaged in his personal ministry, do you remember when he asked the apostles, the disciples, what people were saying about him? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, some are saying you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and then Jesus wanted to know, but who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are God's anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto you, upon this rock I will build my church. That's singular in nature, isn't it? Also possessive, it belongs to the Lord. So with regard to His kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom, it is a singular kingdom. That has to do with the distinctiveness of the kingdom. Now, there's a second thing that we need to take into consideration as we think about the kingdom 
as spoken of by John in the Revelation in about A.D. 95 or 96. Not only is there the distinctiveness of the kingdom, but what about the duration of the kingdom? Well, Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that in these days, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He said the kingdom would not be left to another people, but rather it would break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. He said it will stand forever. The kingdom of God, a spiritual entity, a singular entity, a distinctive entity. With regard to its duration, the kingdom is here today, isn't it? And we, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we are a part of the kingdom. There are some people in the world today, they're looking for the coming of the kingdom of God. Please listen very carefully. It's here. Been here. Been here for nearly 2,000 years. When John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, do you know what he said? You know what the thrust of his message was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, Jesus echoed the very same thing as Matthew records in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. During the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, here's what the Lord said. There are some of you standing here that shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. When did the kingdom of God come with power? Pentecost Day. When was that? About A.D. 32 or 33? Well, who then are members of the kingdom? Those who have obeyed the gospel. On Pentecost Day, when multitudes of people, after hearing the gospel for the first time, that is, the first gospel message, sermon, when they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Verse 41, the Bible says, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day. Verse 47, Luke said, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The kingdom and the church, one and the same institution. Not every time when you read about the kingdom in Scripture is it talking about the church, but many, many times it is. Some... 68 times, I believe, there's a reference to the kingdom of God. About 32 times, the kingdom of heaven. Over 90 times, the word church is used. And then, what about the dominion of His kingdom? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. I said just a moment ago, the kingdom we're talking about will stand forever. Ultimately, one day, the kingdom will be offered up to the Father, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But note, if you would, verse 6 again. The Bible says that Jesus has made us a kingdom and a priesthood to His, to his God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The word dominion here carries with it the idea of power, sovereignty. We talk about Jesus is the sovereign ruler over the universe, isn't He? Is Jesus over the church? Yes, He is. Well, what about in the physical realm? Is Jesus over all things? Yes, He is. Back up and look, if you would, at verse 5. When John wrote to the saints, in speaking of Christ, he identified Him as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, listen to him, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. One day, Pont or rather 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate, 
had the opportunity to have, as we would say, a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. One day, Pontius Pilate will stand before Jesus, won't he? And as the Bible says, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. One other thing I want to point out very quickly. The duties in the kingdom. John said that Jesus has made us a kingdom and a priesthood. Did you know that every Christian is a priest? Those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we are priests. In first, well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter said that we are a royal priesthood, that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant, priests came from what tribe? Do you remember? Levi. Every priest came from that tribe. But not every person from that tribe was a priest. But those of us who belong to the body of Christ today, we are priests of the Most High God, aren't we? And the intent is that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, we have a lot of duties. One of the things that we do, we worship God on a regular basis. The Hebrew writer said, we offer unto God the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Now, there's a... Another thing I want you to see, we talk about his regal government. Consider, if you would, his glorious return. Drop down and look with me, if you would, in verses 17 and 18. Listen to what is said beginning in verse 17. John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Speaking of Jesus. He said, I am him who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. A couple of things here. We talk about the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, it will be a visible return. I mentioned that this morning, didn't I? Back up and look at verse 7 again. In verse 7, John said, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The one who had the responsibility of piercing the side of Jesus will stand before him one day. Now John said, when he comes, every eye shall see him. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. I have never heard the voice of an archangel. But I believe with all my heart one day I will hear that voice. I will hear the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise, will they not? Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 5 said, The hour is coming when all who are in, in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. So there is this visible return of Jesus. He's going to come 
visibly, but there's a second thing I want you to see. He will come victoriously. Jesus was put to death on Calvary, placed in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. Three days later, early on the first day of the week, Jesus was resurrected from the, from the dead. And the Bible says he is alive forevermore. A couple of things here I want to share with you very quickly. First, look again at verse 17. One of the things that paralyzes people in life is the thought of death, isn't it? I don't know many people that like to talk about death. I really don't know a lot of people that like to even think about death. But it's a reality. The Hebrew writer said, It is appointed unto man once to die, after this cometh the judgment. What did, what did James compare life to? A vapor. He said it appears for a little while and then vanishes away. When Job wrote in Job chapter 14, verse 1, he said, Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. One day the Lord is coming visibly, yes, but He's also coming victoriously. When the Lord Jesus comes, the cemeteries, the cemetery doors will be unlocked. The Lord Jesus has the keys to the cemetery. So what the Lord is saying is, look, is it true we fear death sometimes? Yes. But Jesus said, do not be afraid. In John chapter 6, on one occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, it is I, do not be afraid. So many times we fear the unknown. Are there things that we fear that we know something about? Yes. But many, many people fear death. What the Lord is saying is, look, you don't need to fear death. Why? Because I have the keys to the cemetery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, in writing to the saints, talked about the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me very quickly. I want you to see something here. You recall he identified those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And in chapter 15 and about verse 50, he said, Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. But look at verse 50. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. I will show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Who's he talking about there? He has under consideration those who have died in Christ. They have, as we would say, gone to be with the Lord. And so he said, look, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The word moment in this context is the word from which we get our term Adam. And really what Paul is saying is, the time under consideration here is so minute. He talks about in the twinkling of an eye. The time is so minute, it can't be cut or divided in two. I was reading today, matter of fact, I went back and looked. 
an eye blinks in about three to four hundred milliseconds. So, I guess in our terminology, the blinking of an eye takes place in about a third of a second. That's fast. What Paul is saying, when the Lord Jesus comes, it will be so fast, so amazingly fast, as he said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Do you remember when Jesus, well, when he was resurrected, the angels asked the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus was raised from the dead, and on that basis, we have hope to be resurrected ourselves, do we not? Peter said that we have an inheritance. It is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Listen again, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he said, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And then he talks about how this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, and then shall come to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus came forth from the grave, that was a death blow to Satan. So one day, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Listen again to verse 18. Revelation 1, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus has the keys over the, over the Hadean realm. He has the keys over death itself, does he not? Now, oftentimes, as I said a moment ago, we tend to fear death. One of the reasons is because we've never experienced death. And death is described by the Apostle Paul as our enemy. It has been an enemy to the human family going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What the Lord is saying here is this. Look, if you're one of His, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid because one day you will come forth to life. This afternoon I received a text from Eddie Archer. This past week, Eddie and I were talking on the, on the telephone. And as you well know, he's gone to Chicago this afternoon, flew up this afternoon to begin treatments again, starting tomorrow. And Eddie was telling me, I think it was Thursday maybe, or Wednesday, he said, 15, 16 years ago today, my brother got killed in a motorcycle accident, 33 years old. His mother died, I think she was 51, 52 years of age. Last year, his sister died. Three years ago, almost three years ago to the day, Andrew was killed. And he's been battling cancer. And now he's battling cancer again. 
And he said he told the doctor, he said, you know what? He said, every time I get knocked down, I, I get back up. And he said, it seems like when I get back up, I get knocked to the ground again. Look, I don't have all the answers. Do some people seem to have more difficulties and trials and tribulations than others? Yes. Can I explain that? No. I know that we live in a world that's filled with suffering and heartache and tears. And there are some folks that seem as if they have more than their share. You can read the book of Job. But when Eddie sent me a text this afternoon, here's what he said. I'm going to be okay. And here's what, I, here's what I take from that. Do you remember in Philippians chapter 1 when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi? And he said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Paul is contemplating his options, isn't he? On the one hand, he's thinking about, okay, there's a real possibility I could live. For me to live is to continue in service to Christ. He said, the flip side, though, is I might die. But he said, if I die, then what? That's gain. He said, if I were to depart this life, then ultimately, when it's all said and done, that's far better. So here's how we would say it. It's a win-win situation, isn't it? If he lives... He's a winner because Christ is with him. If he dies, he's a winner. Why? Because the Lord's with him. Here's what we need to understand. If we are God's people, God's children, whether we live or whether we die, it's a win-win situation. Because the Lord has already said in Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whatever battles, whatever difficulties we face in this life, no matter how steep the climb may be, the Lord is with us, isn't he? Through thick and thin, whatever we may face in life, what did, what did Peter say? Cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. We talk about the genuine love of God. The fact he genuinely loves us, he cares about us, so much so that he says, look, you give me your problems, you give me your troubles, you give me your fears, I can handle them. But what if we die? David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you. He said, You're with me. David is saying, Look, I may leave this world, and I will leave this world, but I leave knowing that I will be with the Lord on that journey. I don't know what the future holds for, for us, but I do know the one that holds the future. And I know every time we stand at the side of an open grave, we need to remind ourselves of the Lord's glorious return because one day He will come again. When He comes again, we will be with Him forevermore. So here's what Jesus said again. Do not be afraid. I'm the first, the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. One day the Lord is coming. When the Lord Jesus comes, the doors to the cemeteries, they will be opened. And every single person in the grave will come forth. Some to life, some to condemnation. The splendor of Jesus. He was an amazing individual. He is an, amaz an amazing individual 
today, when you begin to look at his life and you begin to think about all the things that he said and did, I want to close tonight by asking you a question. Do you know Jesus? We've talked about the majesty of Jesus, and now we've talked about the splendor of Jesus. But do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ, the Son of God? When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I know whom I have believed. Do you have that same, that same mindset, you know him? Paul said, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. If your life is in the hands of God, let me tell you what, all is well, whether you live or die. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ tonight. Well, what would you need to do? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess His name before others, Acts 8, 37. Be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22, 16. If you'll do that, then you'll be a part of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, and for whatever reason, your life is not what it ought to be. Look, we're the family of God. We're the church. And James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. And I, I, I cite that verse to simply say this. We have the privilege to pray for one another. You don't have to be spiritually sick for us to pray for you. You can just be hurting physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever the case may be. We want you to know if you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray for you tonight as we stand and sing.